Sharing student narratives about their experiences can help us understand how our instructional and policy decisions impact the student experience. In this episode, we discuss the perceptions students with disabilities have of their learning experiences. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Kane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer, and features guests doing important research and advocacy work to make higher education more inclusive and supportive of all learners. Our guest today is Amy Fisk. Amy is the Assistant Dean for Accessibility at the State University of New York at Geneseo. Amy oversees the Office of Accessibility Services, which coordinates accommodations and support services for students with disabilities. Prior to her role at Geneseo, Amy coordinated a support program for students on the autism spectrum at SUNY Purchase. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Today's teas are... Amy, are you drinking any tea? I drink tea every morning. So I have Bigelow French vanilla black tea. It's a good way to start the day. How about you, John? In honor of the holiday season, I have Christmas tea today. I'm drinking blue sapphire from my favorite tea shop in Canandaigua. Where's that? It's right on Main Street. You should go there. I should. We've invited you to talk about the article, Perspectives Among College Students with Disabilities on Access and Inclusion, which you co-authored with someone else. Rebecca, I think it was. That name sounds familiar. Which was published in College Teaching earlier this year. Before we talk about the article, could you tell us a little bit about your role at SUNY Geneseo? So I oversee our Office of Accessibility Services, or OAS. I meet with students to coordinate accommodations and other kinds of support services for our students with disabilities. I monitor policies and procedures within our office, and I often work with faculty and staff on issues related to accessibility inclusion. So for example, I might do trainings across campus, work with administrators on various committees, and having a voice on issues related to disability, education, awareness, and accessibility. So prior to this project, Amy and I didn't actually know each other. Did you want to share the origin story? I started my position here a month before COVID became a thing. So I was kind of thrown into some challenges I did not anticipate. But one of the things I had been thinking about, many of my colleagues were thinking about was how are we going to support our students with disabilities? We're really kind of concerned about their trajectory during this challenging time. We wanted to just get some more information about students' experiences during COVID. I started talking to Nasley about this and she says, you know, I know someone who does research who also might be interested in a potential collaboration. So that's how I got connected to Rebecca. And ultimately, we shared an interest in learning more about the impact of COVID on our students within our respective roles on our campuses. We knew this was a really challenging time for all of us, but especially for our students with disabilities who had already been experiencing barriers pre-pandemic. And so we really wanted to hear from our students about their experiences and what can we learn about access and inclusion moving forward, even when the dust settles and we talk about things post-COVID. A lot of the studies that have been done have been quantitative studies, and your study is a qualitative study. 
Could you talk a little bit about how this qualitative research complements the quantitative research that's been done? Sure. So ultimately, we wanted to gather students' stories. And many of our findings from our studies are reflective of findings from past studies on challenges and barriers students with disabilities face compared to students without disabilities. But we wanted to identify these specifically within the context of remote learning and also within the context of navigating this challenging time just in life. We really wanted that student narrative. And we also wanted to assess the positive things that were happening, the practices that were helping our students feel successful to really help inform tangible takeaways and recommendations to our readers. And we hoped for this information to be relevant, like I said, when the dust settles and regardless of teaching modality. And I think it's important to highlight that despite the obvious challenges that COVID brought, it has highlighted the importance of accessibility in higher education and really gave us an opportunity to reassess what we've been doing, our everyday policies and practices. And we really wanted to highlight that from the student perspective. Beyond that, we also wanted to talk about the needs of our students with disabilities within the context of access and inclusion. So often disabilities and identities that tends to be left out of conversations related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it wasn't just about how we need to provide appropriate classroom accommodations, but what are the ways that we can be more inclusive, promote a sense of belonging, proactively provide equal access. So those were the things that we had in mind as we were designing our study. One of the things that comes up in a lot of conversations at least more recently in higher ed, is this growing number of students who are registering for accommodations and also the mental health crisis. Can you talk a little bit about that to provide some context for our discussion today? Sure. So the mental health needs of college students with disabilities was becoming really apparent before COVID hit. Really significant needs related to depression, anxiety, other severe psychiatric impairments, and the studies that had been done around the time of COVID really highlighted those issues of more and more students connecting to their disability services offices, self-identifying as a student with a disability where they have uh, clinical levels of depression, anxiety, other debilitating mental health needs. And that theme came out in our study as well. Did all the discussions of the challenges of COVID help encourage students to become more willing to declare their mental health challenges or their other needs that perhaps they might have been more reluctant to state prior to this time? I think so. I think there is a shift in our culture in it being okay to talk about mental health and mental illness for students to say, I'm having a really hard time. I'm struggling because mental health is a spectrum. We all experience a variety of emotions throughout the day throughout an hour and throughout our lifetime. And I think it's becoming slowly destigmatized in talking about mental illness and the importance of promoting mental health, especially among our college age population. A lot of college campuses are really taking seriously the wellness of their students on campus just because of the rise in numbers of students needing that extra support because colleges across our country are noticing a pretty significant increase. And I do think COVID has propelled that destigmatization of talking about mental health. We've talked in the past on this podcast with Kat McFarlane about 
some of the barriers that students face in just even approaching and asking for accommodations, having to register with an Office of Disability Services or whatever the equivalent is on the campus, and having to self-identify. And then a lot of students don't actually choose to do that for a wide variety of reasons, some associated with stigma. But we are seeing increased registrations. So does that mean that there's increased disability? Yes. I think there are a variety of factors and more students connecting with disability services offices. One, I think high schools are better preparing students with disabilities to enter the post-secondary environment. Two, I think our offices are becoming more visible on campus. Again, I think there's also a destigmatization of disability and accessibility services offices, and we're becoming more visible and relevant on college campuses. And third, I think colleges are starting to talk about disability as an important facet of diversity more and more. I think there's certainly room for improvement, but I think that conversation is starting to happen. So more students are finding their way into our offices. So three key themes emerged in our research about the perceptions of students with disabilities of our institutions and their experience and of belonging. And so those three themes are accommodations and accessibility, building relationships and community, and then core structure and design. Perhaps we can take them one at a time here. So let's start with accommodations and accessibility. Can you first start with what's the difference between accommodations and accessibility? Because we know that this is often something that's confusing to folks. Sure. So an accommodation by definition is designed to remove some sort of barrier that an individual with a disability is experiencing. So an academic accommodation, for example, might be having extra time to take an exam because time tasks can be a barrier for some students. Maybe it's a note-taking accommodation because they need assistance accessing that lecture material. Sometimes it's ensuring that the course materials themselves are accessible, that they can be read through a screen reader. Sometimes the accommodation is related to a course policy, such as attendance for a student with a more severe chronic medical condition. So it is an individualized process to assess what an appropriate accommodation would look like. But the purpose of it is to remove some sort of barrier so that this person has equal access to their environment. And so accommodations, though necessary and something that were legally required to provide for the ADA, it's really a reactive way of ensuring equal access. It's a floor. It's a minimum. Accessibility, on the other hand, is about inclusion from the start so that individual accommodation may not even be needed. And something I like to highlight is that accessibility is not about lowering standards. It's sending a message that everyone belongs in the space and that inclusion matters. What were some of the most common barriers that students reported facing related to accommodations and accessibility in your study? Some of those barriers were students just not receiving their approved accommodations during remote learning, including extended time on tests, for example, or online course materials just not being accessible or having to continually remind instructors about their accommodations, explain why they needed the accommodation in the first place, negotiating terms of pre-approved accommodations. And this was particularly true among students with what we might call an invisible or non-apparent disability, such as learning disabilities, ADHD, mental health disabilities. These students are less likely to be believed 
and questioned about the validity of their disability or their need for accommodation. So those were some pretty significant barriers for students and just not receiving the accommodations that they were approved for. I think one of the things that was also highlighted as a result of our study taking place while COVID was in full force is how many campus resources students with disabilities and other students depend upon every day. So we had students reporting things like, well, I didn't have access to a printer to blow up text when it was more of an image instead of an accessible text that could have been expanded digitally or having access to a quiet space like the library. Yeah, that was really significant. And then that is where you also saw some other equity disparities. So there were some students who lived down near New York City in very populated areas. There was a lot going down there at the time, COVID, if we recall. Some students did not have quiet spaces at home, whereas other students had quiet home offices and their parents may have been at home with them, helping to support them. And then other students who didn't have a quiet space whatsoever, took on more caretaking responsibilities, didn't have access to Wi-Fi. So those equity disparities continued to widen during COVID beyond the disability barrier. So that was something significant, I think, that needed to be highlighted. What are some of the factors related to accessibility and accommodations that actually resulted in positive perceptions? So our students actually reported some very positive interactions with their instructors. So when receiving a student's letter of accommodation or like an accommodation notification that would come through our office, some would reach out and ask the student, how can I support you? How can I help provide this accommodation? One student even noted how they appreciated that the instructor didn't call them out in class because that had happened before. So I think just preserving the student's dignity, reaching out to the student, those were the kinds of things that our students reported as making a significant difference. I know your study focused on the status of students during COVID, but in your role addressing these issues now, Have the changes in faculty behavior persisted? Have faculty continued to become more sensitive to some of the accessibility and accommodation needs of students as we move back to more classroom instruction? So in conversation with colleagues, other disability service providers across SUNY, but also across the country, I think we've seen a mix. I think there are some who just wanted to go back to normal. And didn't we all? I think COVID, again, was a very challenging time. And faculty, too, didn't have a ton of support and also really struggled with having that emergency shift to a remote learning modality. And some didn't have the skills or support to really deliver courses in the way that would have facilitated student success. So they were really looking forward to getting back to that in-person modality, back to the pedagogy they were used to. And that may have posed some new barriers for students coming back to college campuses. Conversely, we also saw instructors taking some of those learned lessons from the remote learning period and applying them when we did come back to campus. So I do know of a number of instructors who, for example, are still utilizing the lecture videos they created during COVID and post them on their learning management system for students who may not have been able to attend class that day, for example, so they can still get the lecture material or 
recreating their course materials and documents so that they are accessible, creating videos, captioning their videos, modifying some course policies to be a bit more inclusive for students. So I think there has been a change in realizing we can still have students be successful and meet the learning objectives, but in a different and more inclusive way. I think one of the things that we can highlight that also came out in the student experience, and students reported this in our study, is that some of them actually experienced better access during COVID. Not all, but some, in part because some of the technology caught up. And when we first went remote, Zoom didn't have captions available by default, and now it does. And so a lot of these things have become norms that people with disabilities have fought for for a long time and never got. And I would say that's true as well with regard to course policies that may have been amended as well. Introducing more self-paced work, which is also something that students really appreciated during the remote learning period. I just recently returned from the pod conference where there were many, many discussions of this very issue. And in general, the results there were pretty much the same as what you've described that a lot of the changes that faculty made to better accommodate students' needs persisted, but some faculty have moved back to old practices. And the results are a little bit mixed. But on average, there seemed to be, in a number of studies, some substantial improvement in faculty responses to student needs. Based on what students have reported, what recommendations do you have for faculty related to accommodations and accessibility to continue the forward movement as opposed to regressing? So I actually did a talk with faculty for one of our academic departments at the start of the semester, reviewing our office, some of the logistical pieces of implementing accommodations, that sort of thing. But before I started really getting into that, we had a discussion about how accommodations and the dialogue about accommodations with students are approached, how it's discussed, how it's communicated. Something as simple as taking time to actually review the portion in your course syllabus related to an accommodation, so maybe an accessibility statement, that tells students that this is important. Making sure that your online materials are accessible from the start, that tells students that accessibility and inclusion is important. And students are more likely to engage in a reciprocal dialogue with you about their needs when they feel like they are heard, when they feel like they're a valued member of the class that their accommodations are important and not burdensome. That's a term we heard a lot in our study, that they're not a burden or it's some sort of requirement that the faculty has to fulfill. And so I think this is probably true for most students, regardless of disability. But students in our study specifically noted how they appreciated when the instructor showed empathy and understanding and flexibility, recognizing that students have significant issues outside of the classroom. We all do. Between family, finances, things that are happening in our world today. And I think this is important to acknowledge as well, given that we're seeing an increase in students from various diverse backgrounds coming into the college environment. And as we've talked about many times on the podcast, flexible doesn't mean not having standards. (laughs) And it doesn't mean a free for all. In fact, a lot of our students benefit from structure, which we'll talk about, I think, in a few minutes, because that ties to one of our other themes. You talked a little bit about faculty workload related to this and Sometimes the perception that faculty put off is that it's a burden to provide these accommodations. And the reality is that a lot of our students need very similar things. And so if we think about the common requests for accommodations or digital accessibility strategies from the start, we often don't have a lot of one-off things that we do need to accommodate because we've already built it into our courses. 
That's not to say that there aren't accommodations that we need to provide additionally, but it may result in less work ultimately to really think about these accessibility principles up front. Right. And I think something as simple as making your course lecture materials available on the learning management system available to students, that can help reduce a lot of barriers for many students who might struggle with keeping up with the pace of the lecture and they end up missing material. A student who may have missed class that one day and and just needs that material. Other students who need to kind of reteach themselves the material because perhaps they had challenges with staying focused during class. I think there's a variety of reasons why students would benefit from that, but something as simple as that. Often when students come to see me, There may be students who hadn't needed accommodations previously, but they encountered a particular course where the policies were such that there were new barriers that arose. And if the policy was different, perhaps they wouldn't need that accommodation. That's a concrete example of the difference between accommodation and accessibility. Some of our course policies and course design may be inadvertently barriers to students with or without disability. So this might include use of hop quizzes, not making lecture materials available to students, not permitting use of technology, not allowing students to even take breaks in class. And so although the purpose of these policies is probably to make students engaged and have accountability in the course, which these are things, of course, we want. Again, we're not lowering standards. Students still need to go to class and do the work. But I think some of these policies actually might be having the opposite effect. And it does force students to request accommodations rather than focus on learning in the course. I think that many faculty who had only taught in a face-to-face modality before COVID were able to avoid issues of accessibility by not creating digital content. When they moved to remote teaching, though, they were forced to begin developing digital materials and often receive some training in creating accessible digital content. Do you think that that training received during COVID helped encourage more accessible practices by faculty in general? I think so. Again, I think some of these practices have shifted over time, and I think COVID has shed light on the benefits of accessibility, not just for people with disabilities, but for all people. I mean, again, use of captions and subtitles can be beneficial for a lot of folks, whether you're sitting in a busy Starbucks, whether you have a lot going on in the background, maybe you're trying to juggle work and family, maybe, again, you're hard of hearing, and so you need access to those captions. Again, accessibility is for all, not just about or for people with disabilities. The second theme that kind of emerged in our research was building relationships and community. Can you share some insights with faculty about the role that they can play in helping students with disabilities feel connected and included? And you highlighted some of those already, providing accommodations and showing students some dignity and respecting their dignity. So again, I think engaging with a student and even something as simple as taking the student aside and asking, how can I make this course more accessible to you, speaks volumes to the student that they are valued, they belong, that their needs aren't burdensome, and they're more likely to engage in a reciprocal dialogue with the faculty member when they feel like, oh, they care about me and my success in this course. I actually knew about a professor who did an anonymous Google form asking students, how can I make this course more accessible to you? Are there barriers in reviewing the syllabus? Do you have concerns about something within the course? 
One of my students actually told me about this and said how it really made them feel seen and valued. And they were more likely to reach out to the instructor when they needed help because some students fail to do so out of shame. They're in a very vulnerable position to talk about their disability-related needs to a faculty member, to an authority figure. And so when you do something as simple as asking a student, how can I make this accessible to you? Are you experiencing barriers right now? Really opens that line of communication with a student and helps them build a positive relationship with that instructor and for maybe other instructors. And also helps to build a sense of community so that other students know that this is really important and that inclusion matters. And that's also sending a message to other students within the classroom that we appreciate and respect diverse learners here in this classroom. I think that's a teachable moment for students as well. So one of the other things that I think emerged is a desire to be connected with peers, but that faculty can play a really important role in facilitating that connection. So I think oftentimes we just assume in a classroom that at the beginning of class, students are socializing and getting to know other folks and have those contacts. But students really reported that having more structured ways of connecting with peers was really beneficial to them outside of class. And that's something that I think we might take for granted as instructors in the classroom that it would just kind of organically happen. But that structure, that scaffolding around that really bubbled up as being pretty important to our students. Yeah, that peer-to-peer interaction, or even if it was virtual. One of our students said, Our instructor had a virtual whiteboard that we could all do group work, even when it was asynchronous, which is pretty neat. So that helps set the stage for positive peer interactions, for peers to ask peers for help and mentorship, which is important. Often students just feel that going to office hours is the only way that they can receive help. And when you provide opportunities to work together, learn together, That really helps, again, open up a line of communication among peers as well, which is a skill that we're trying to teach our students. And that was especially severe during COVID, but also when we returned to the classroom and students were asked to sit at least six feet away from any other student. It certainly reduced the amount of interaction and it has made it a little more challenging for all students to interact with others. That's been improving. But I think perhaps that experience may remind faculty of the importance of building those types of connections, because even before COVID, there were always some students who may not have felt as much a part of the class community. But I think we've all learned the importance of community during that time. I think that's just another example of something that students with disabilities have pointed out as being really important to them, but is also important to many other students, too. The third theme that emerged from your research was course structure and design. And most of your findings in that particular category align with many other studies involving inclusive pedagogy and universal design for learning. Can you highlight some of the common barriers that students with disabilities face in terms of course structure and design? So one of our students in the study comically referred to one of their course LMS pages as a scavenger hunt, where they spent more time trying to find the materials and the information on the course rather than on the assignments themselves. So students in general benefit from an organized LMS and an organized syllabus where deadlines, instructions, policies are very clear and concise. But for students with disabilities, this is particularly important. Many of my students with ADHD, health or chronic medical conditions, or a learning disability, they need to plan ahead. 
because it might take these students double or triple the time to finish a task. So if students don't know when their next test is or if instructions aren't posted a few days before something is due, we're really not setting them up for success. And I also talked about some of those other policies and course design that might be inadvertent barriers to our students. And so some of our students reported that they did benefit from self-paced tasks or untimed learning assessments. Having some autonomy and options for completing assignments in a different format, such as doing a presentation or a podcast instead of a paper, working in groups or choosing to work individually on a project. Those are some of the specific practices that our students highlighted as being really helpful. And again, we're not lowering standards. They have to meet the same standards and learning objectives as every other student, just perhaps meeting those same standards in a different way. And that's what universal design and learning is all about. One time in a workshop, a faculty member mentioned that they have students do a scavenger hunt in the LMS to find various course policies, sort of find materials. And I cringed at that. And I suggested that it might be better to design your course in a way where the students don't have to struggle to find things so they can focus their cognitive efforts on learning materials rather than engaging in scavenger hunts trying to navigate the course. Has that improved recently? I think it has. Again, in conversations with some of my colleagues who do this work and talking with faculty, I think it's a mixed bag as it relates to how instructors are approaching course design and their policies. But other faculty are seeing that changing their pedagogy, changing their policies, changing the way they interact and see students and helping to meet those student needs have evolved because perhaps they themselves have experienced accessibility barriers during COVID as well. And so it's become more relevant because they have that lived experience. And they're seeing that adopting some of these inclusive practices are actually helping to keep their students engaged, that the students, even if they're struggling, are more likely to tell their faculty member, I'm struggling and I need help, but I want to stay in this course. What kind of flexibility could be provided rather than We'll use a college student term, ghosting the class. So I think things are changing in a direction that speaks to some degree of flexibility and helping students meet those same standards, where the focus is more on learning rather than adherence to an arbitrary policy. I think the students really underscored, maybe without realizing, things like the transparency in learning and teaching are tilt where being really clear and explicit about what the expectation is and how to get there and how you're going to be assessed really helps and supports students. That structure and those guardrails is what all of us need. How many times have we worked on a paper the second before a deadline? We work on deadlines. And so if we help students with intermediary deadlines, we're actually helping them. And that doesn't mean that we're not flexible. And flexibility doesn't mean not having those. It's about scaffolding about recognizing that not all students are coming from the same background and experiences and privilege. They're not on the same playing field. And so providing those scaffolded learning opportunities, that can really help even the playing field is providing those scaffolded learning opportunities. And it's really some of this scaffolded accountability. So it's not all due at once. It's helpful to faculty to remind them that there's feedback throughout a process on a larger assignment, but also it's helpful for students to hit individual deadlines to evolve their work as well. And that is something that is found, as you noted earlier, 
by Marianne Winklemiss in her research on transparency in learning and teaching, and also by Vijay Sathy and Kelly Hogan in their research on the importance of structure in reducing equity gaps. While transparency and structure benefits all students, it especially benefits the students who have equity gaps of some form. And it sounds as if that's also true for students with disabilities. Yeah, I think none of this is really new, but oftentimes students with disabilities aren't necessarily included in those studies about equity always. It's not always one of the groups that's pulled out separately. Part of what's next is also hearing about the experiences of students with disabilities from other diverse backgrounds, including students of color, students from lower SES backgrounds, students in the LGBTQ plus community, that those experiences are different and that intersectionality is really key in understanding students' experiences in the classroom and how we can be more accessible and inclusive. Because again, accessibility is not just related to, are we providing a legally required accommodation? But are we creating a sense of belonging in that space and giving students an equal opportunity to demonstrate their knowledge and be successful, which is ultimately why we're all here, I would hope. So we always wrap up by asking, what's next? I think it's important to not just put a focus on what individual faculty can be doing in their classrooms to support students with disabilities, but how are we promoting access and inclusion at the institutional level? Supporting students with disabilities and Students from other diverse backgrounds is a whole campus responsibility and faculty need support in doing that work as well. So I'm hoping what's next is working with administration, other campus leaders, and identifying ways we can really help move that needle in a meaningful way. Baking accessibility into larger DEIB, our diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging campus initiatives, our campus-wide policy, strategic planning campus-wide faculty and staff training and other professional development opportunities, hiring diverse faculty and staff on our campus. So not just about talking the talk, but walking the walk when it comes to access and inclusion in higher education. I think that's definitely a theme that we'll see throughout all of higher ed. I hope that we'll all go arm in arm and move in this direction collaboratively. Well, thank you for joining us. It's been great talking to you. And we're looking forward to hearing more of your future work on this topic. Well, thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate it. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.